Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. We're hearing about the priesthood of believers today. Heard a lot about that, and it's pretty appropriate that also this would be a good a time as any to mention something to you and to warn you about something. Something called the prosperity gospel, the word of faith movement. Everybody pretty familiar with that? At least at a certain level. The name it and claim it movement. And it's based primarily on the idea that there's a health and wealth gospel and that if you have enough faith and you can claim certain verses by faith, they'll come true for you. Or that your faith, if you exercise it by faith giving to certain preachers and their ministries, you will prosper and you will have peace. And you know some of these names. They're, they're famous over the years. Benny Hinn, Joyce Meyer, the aptly named Creflo Dollar, Kenneth Copeland, and on and on. In fact, Dollar once said this, quote, Some people come to me and say, well, I came here to get some peace, not money. And I tell them, you need money, otherwise you ain't going to get no peace. End quote. How about that? And many of these false teachers, they're known for very lavish lifestyles, as you may know, private jets, mansions. One very popular preacher boasts of a net worth of well over $50 million. And it's not a new thing. It's an age-old problem in religious circles. As a more modern movement, it kind of began and was exposed as a scandal in the 1980s moving forward. But the big problem, one of the big problems in this is that so many professing Christians fall for it. One poll found that 20%, that's one out of every five, American Christians identify explicitly with the movement, while one-third affirm the idea that if you give your money to God, God will bless you with more money. And they do this by misinterpreting and even perverting Scripture and its meaning. I'll give you an example right from where we were recently toward the end of the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the, ga- and for the Gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. That's a complete misunderstanding of that, to apply that to prosperity today. And in fact, verse 31 kind of clears up that attitude when Jesus said, but many who are first will be last and the last first. I can give you at least a dozen more scriptures where they're butchered in order to teach this error. And it's no wonder then 61% of these Christians, according to this poll, agree with the general idea, it says, that God wants people to be prosperous financially. And that is really interesting, since I'm here to tell you, amongst other things, there is no biblical justification for that whatsoever. Quite the contrary, actually. So the roots of this movement, if you will are going to come clear now as we end the 12th chapter of Mark's Gospel, where, as you know, Tuesday of the Passion Week, Holy Week, right? Our Lord's ministry in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, which is the highest of their holidays, holy days. Uh, He began that day, remember, cleaning out the temple 
The money changers. Lots of money was changing hands, interestingly enough. You need to keep that in the context, the back of your mind. A lot of that money went to the scribes, went to the priests and other religious leaders. And in the Lord Jesus, he was confronted by these religious Jews with four different questions, one another, one after another, meant to just trap him into saying something that would turn the people and the Roman Empire against him so that they would see him as a threat to public safety and the law of Moses, which he was neither. That was the official position they took, but we know why. It was about pride. It's about keeping the status quo. That was a very legalistic, works-oriented religious system, better known as rabbinical rabbinical, I should say, rabbinical Judaism, which had defected from the Old Testament faith. In fact, it's still in place today. And it was very beneficial, very profitable to the leaders at the top of that time. So you'd understand why they were threatened by and they wanted to get rid of Jesus. Especially after, as we saw last time, he revealed his true identity as the long-awaited Messiah. He answered it by answering this question of the Christ he posed, and he went to Old Testament Scripture to do it. So we see here, Jesus is just through. He's through with the Jews. He's literally shut them up once and for all. They're amazed. They're dumbfounded. They don't know what to do with him. In fact, we saw in verse 34, after that it says, after he was done speaking, after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Okay? He is done with them, and in this text, he gives his final teaching in public before he goes to the cross. Because the rest of his preaching and teaching is going to be for his disciples only. It's going to happen over the next 48 hours in final preparation for Holy Weekend. And before that, though, here in his final lesson at the temple... Before he's going to go to the Mount of Olives to start teaching on the end times, which we'll get into next time, he wants to give the people a warning about these religious leaders, the predators that they are. And he's going to pronounce woes of judgment on these predators. So you learn about the consequences of what happens when you follow false teachers. And then finally, he's going to make an observation about a widow that's going to picture some of these warnings that we should take to heart. So let's, let's start with the warning here. That's in verses 38 to 39. Again, the text says, and in his teaching, Jesus said, Beware of the scribes. Beware. Watch out. Literally, look out for. Be cautious of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts. What's interesting in the Greek here, construction of it, it's a present tense verb that keeps on going. It's an imperative. It's like Jesus is saying, always be looking out for, always be watching, always be discerning about these false teachers because they're always around. So this is a warning shot that he is giving to everyone with an earshot of him in the temple, including the scribes and including the Pharisees. Matthew mentions them too. They were wolves in sheep's clothing. You've heard of that before? Kind of like a disguise? Because they're deceptive. They've always been around God's people in and around the church. And appearances can deceive. These Jews, these scribes, these Pharisees, the priests, the rest of Sanhedrin, they look so holy. They look so pious in all the flowing robes and the garb. And, and they were treated as such, as semi-celebrities. 
influencers of Israel. They were. They loved to be showered with respect. I think I have a picture here um, of a scribe. And that's what a scribe looked like, holding the scroll of the law. And they had the tassels that let everyone know that they were teachers and scribes. And, and there was this whole uniform that they had. In fact, the Talmud, their commentaries, taught that a Jew in Israel was required to stand in the presence of a rabbi or a scribe. Pay attention. Right? These men liked this special treatment. They loved these uniforms because they just shouted out their office wherever they were. They would parade around the marketplace, which literally means in the temple or, or any assembly of people, like the town square, and, and they would do buying and selling there. It's wherever business was being done. And it was their way of saying, just look at me. I'm important. That's how they took the original priestly garb and took it to next level, because their emphasis was on reputation, not their character was more important for them to sit in the right places than to live the right kind of life. The best seats, when it talks about that, that refers to a bench at the end of the synagogue, and it was on a little platform, and it would face, it would face the audience, the congregation, and it was done as a place for leaders, a place of distinction, a place where everyone could look up at them. You see this in some old traditional churches, You've seen the leaders sitting on chairs on the platform. Kind of has that, that influence, if you will, is carried over. And so you know the Bible warns us about false teachers from false religions like this all over the place. And what's going to happen to them? That's why I, I have a difficult job today that the preacher, the teacher of the Word of God, pastors that shepherd a flock, we are to protect you from scribes. We are to protect you from Pharisee types and false teachers that may spiritually hurt or harm you. It's part of the job. In Acts 20, Paul wrote the Ephesian elders, their pastors, and he said to them, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, from your own congregation, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch... And remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. They were known for three things, these religious leaders. Three aspects, the, the attitude, the heart of a predator that we should look out for. Pride, greed, and hypocrisy being two-faced. The pride you heard in verses 38 and 39. According to Matthew, these scribes, they like to be called rabbi. Not only was that a title of the teacher of the law, but as someone that was educated, they would be looked up to as the leaders of the local synagogues. They were like lawyers. They wore the fancy clothes. They held sway over people on not only religious, but civil matters of the law. They were thought of as the experts, the go-to guys. They were thought of as a pillar of society, and they were treated really like loyalty to some extent. So they love the titles like some church leaders do today. It carries over. Theologians that have had certain degrees and they go by doctor. Call me doctor this. Or they want to be called bishop this or apostle that. Today, what's that about? I, nothing good, I'm sure. 
And in Matthew 23, the woes section, we'll get to in a minute, Jesus, right up front, he warned the disciples, who were real apostles, mind you, about taking titles of prestige and tempting pride. In Matthew 23, starting in verse 8, Jesus said, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. He's talking to the disciples, right? This is at the same moment, this is the parallel to Mark's passage we're in today. And he says, Call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. And don't you know the Catholic priests are not crazy about that verse? I don't know how you deal with that. I don't call Catholic priests father. I never have, I never will. This is one of the pointers as to why. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. There's a hint there. Food for thought. Because we should stop for a second here and say, okay, I'm not a scribe, I'm not a Pharisee. How does this apply to me? Did you ever find yourself entertaining those same kind of attitudes or desires in any way? Because it's one thing to have a title, but would you like to have a title or a position or symbols of authority? You have to ask yourself, are you motivated by service or by receiving attention in any way? One way that plays out today, do we dress, might we dress in a sloppy fashion or immodestly or luxuriously so that we would cause men or women to notice us? Do we crave attention at any cost? Because it's the same idea. It's the same heart. Honestly, that's one of the concerns I have with tattoos, which are very prevalent today. And it's the attitude of some, not all. And the Bible does not seem to forbid tattoos per se, not in any sense. But the question I would ask someone, as I often have in the past, is in this context, why do you get them? What's the motive? Because there are some who just like to plaster their bodies with this human graffiti kind of thing, with a kind of a look at me kind of a message. And I'm wondering, I'm just me, just wondering, if pride might have something to do with that. It's food for thought. So there's the issue of pride. Now look at the beginning of verse 40 back in the text, and we look at the greed. They were also devouring widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. What does that mean, devour widows' houses? Because when you hear the word devour, you think of eating something up. Well, the word literally has the idea, in the original language, of consuming something. It would be to strip someone of their goods, the widow's property. Because at this time, so you get the idea, people often left their whole fortunes or their estates to the temple. And a good part of the money would wind up in the hands of the scribes and the Pharisees. Scribes being lawyers, they, employed, they were employed to make out wills for the property, like lawyers do today. A little bit for the estate, a little bit for me, a little bit more for me. So they would convince widows to give their homes, which is all they had after a husband would die oftentimes at that point, to the temple. And they would take the proceeds of the sale for themselves. And in order to do this, they would be really spiritual. They'd go to the widow's house, offer long prayers for her. They were prayers of what it says there, pretense, meaning it was just for show. Prayers for show. It was an excuse. As one preacher said about this verse, 
They literally preyed upon widows by praying for them. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel warned of this kind of conduct among the priests and some prophets centuries before. Just a typical way false teachers kind of left behind their responsibility to be shepherds of God's flock for personal gain. Ezekiel said, like a roaring lion tearing the prey, they have devoured human lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows, many widows in her midst. So you see some things never change. Which leads, by the way, to a very interesting church history parallel. If you're into that kind of thing, why things have happened the way they have. The celibacy policy among Roman Catholic bishops and priests is rooted here, comes from the concern Rome had in losing property and the inheritance of the clergy to their families, wives and children during the medieval period. One way to garner the Roman Catholic Church to get the property and not have it passed down is to not have the priests get married and have children. How convenient. And the apostle Peter had a warning about this sort of thing. 2 Peter 2, it's a letter that has a lot to do with false teaching. He says, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words, having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices. That's another word for greed. And are accursed children. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh. The prosperity preachers, the false word of faith pastors today, they're all about that. They manipulate people into giving money for religious favors and for phony promises. If you watch a certain TV network, you see it all the time. And this is still going on. There are, this is a huge problem in parts of Africa right now. Counterfeit preachers are extracting money from poor people to buy holy items that will bless them or save them, like oils, bracelets, handkerchiefs dipped in holy water, all that stuff. And people are buying it up. You know, it sounds like Tetzel when he was selling indulgences to Germany in the 16th century. What was the money for? It was to build Peter's Basilica, this humongous building and edifice. That's kind of what got Luther driven to the Protestant Reformation. He's like, what is going on here? So you have pride, you have greed, and then you have hypocrisy. Being, saying one thing, doing, being another, being two-faced. And that's going to lead to the woes. Go back in the text in verse 40. Jesus said, after devouring these widows' houses and making long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. They had these long, heartless prayers. And you know, Jesus always had an issue with that. You know, with praying and just being a formal ritualistic thing. About three years before this happened in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord said this in Matthew 6. And when you pray, he's teaching now the disciples how it is to pray. This is going to lead to the Lord's Prayer. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Their reward, you're going to hear about in a second. Religious ritual, posturing, angered Jesus so much, their reward is going to be an eternally hot one. 
So much so, he pronounces these woes on these religious leaders. Mark and Luke just give us a little taste of it, brief little summary. The bigger passage of this is in the parallel account of Matthew's gospel. A woe. What is a woe? Woe. A woe, biblically, is a curse of judgment or a condemnation. It's like getting a prison sentence forever. There are eight different woes that Jesus pronounced in Matthew's gospel. And they were to the scribes and to the Pharisees. In some, I think they may be arguably the harshest words he ever uttered in public. The strongest words he ever said. I'll give you just a bit of it. Matthew 23, if you're there. And you should parallel these with a note in your Bible. Verse 13, the Lord says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. So he's saying you're liars, you don't know the kingdom, you don't know how to get in it, and you're keeping everybody else out of it. And then verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte a Jewish proselyte is a convert to Judaism. They take a Gentile and convert him to Judaism. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. You notice in your ESV, if you have that, verse 14 is missing. Verse 14 is a later addition in the, the less reliable manuscripts a bit, shall we say. The King James has verse 14, which is really quoting verse 40 from Mark, because that's the parallels. So these leaders, they were hypocrites. They weren't into public holiness. They were into public recognition. And because of their pride and their greed, their teaching, their leadership was about just holding on to power, popularity, prestige, prosperity, just like the false teachers today. Remember, folks, always, the fruit is evidence of the root. The hearts of these men were stone cold. Jesus hits them right between the eyes back in Matthew 23, verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. He's saying you look really good on the outside. Inside you're grotesque. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that's repentance, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, nice clean tombs, but which appear beautiful outwardly, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you are also, you also appear outwardly righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He knew what was in their heart. Don't go by appearances when you're judging a teacher. And guess what? At the end of the day, our Lord says there's a consequence. They are going to receive the greater condemnation, or how a modern translation renders that. They will be more severely punished. Why is it greater? Why is hell going to be hotter for false teachers? Because they are religious. Because they had more light, more influence, more word. They knew more, and they abused it. And God hates that. They couldn't plead ignorance. They knew what the Old Testament said. 
passages like this, I'll tell you, they make me as a pastor, they should make George and I a little bit nervous, whether you're a believer or a pastor, because James wrote, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. It's a tremendous policy. Not a trem- it's a policy, but it is a tremendous responsibility in what we're doing, which is why we try not to stray from the Scripture. I just want to be able to say what God says. Because if I'm giving you too much of me, I'm out on, a, I'm out on the ledge, I could get really hurt. And it's not, by the way, just the prosperity preachers that are going to suffer. The liberal teachers will too. So beware of them. They preach a social gospel that God just wants to fix everyone's problems or that Jesus is a lean, green, culturally relevant, poverty-fighting machine. That's not the Messiah. That's not Jesus of the Bible, who's God in the flesh. And so the Lord began this, this diatribe here, these woes of condemnation, by telling the people in essence, look, here's the warning. You can do what they say if they're saying the truth, but don't do what they do. Don't be like them. In other words, pay attention to the words, but be careful, be wise with your fruit inspection. And let's look at the widow finally at the end of the passage. This is the picture of all this from verses 41 to 44. And the Lord says, he sat down, the word says, he sat down opposite the treasury. This is the temple. Watch the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. So Jesus, this is interesting. He sits down with the people, with his disciples, and he's just starting to watch the traffic in front of him. This is real natural, organic discipleship. I love the way Jesus does this. He's just observing something, and he's doing life, and he's teaching naturally. He sees people going by this offering box, and according to the Jewish historian Josephus, among other scholars, these were treasuries in the woman's court of Herod, which everyone could go through. The treasury had like 13 chests or boxes. They looked like the shofar horn turned upside down, the narrow part at the top, and then it would go through and dump into collection boxes made of metal. And you can actually get an idea of how much was put in because their coins varied in weight and you could hear it drop in the box so the more noise you heard in a box you could say oh that person must have gave a lot or such and such gave little I barely heard anything I heard like a penny go in there ding it was very interesting how they put that together and the Lord notices simply makes an observation that the rich gave much. Literally means, the word means great amounts, right? They had much, they gave much. Now, you had to give as per temple regulations. Jews had to do that for the service of the temple, some support of the poor. You could give voluntarily as well. But it might be a good thing that the rich gave a lot, okay? John Flavel, the Puritan, said, to see a man humble under prosperity is one of the greatest rarities in the world. It's pretty cool. But here's what's interesting. Jesus is making a morally neutral observation. He didn't say it was good. He didn't say it was bad that the rich gave a lot or that they should give a lot. It's just an observation. It's not a prescription. He's not giving a command. He's saying, just look at who's giving and how much. And this is after, though, how you tie this in. 
This is after pronouncing the warning and the woes. Jesus seems to be saying this, if I can paraphrase, look at all the money these rich and religious people are putting in. And then you have verse 42. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which makes a penny. A penny. It was like one sixty-fourth of a denarius, their basic coin, which was a day's wage. But she was really poor. She was probably reduced to begging. She was destitute. No wealth whatsoever. And so she put in this small fraction here. In fact, it was their smallest coin in existence. Others would call it a mite. If you have a King James, the story will say this is the widow's mite. Talking about this coin. The Lord knew what it was. He sees, he knows what everybody does with their money and what they give. And this again, he's more interested in why they give than what they give. Pick it up. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor woman, this poor widow, has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. That literally, the Greek has the idea of their overflow, abounding, their leftover. But she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This woman outgave everybody else proportionately. She was in need, she was poor, she gave everything she had. Now, this is important. This may surprise some of you. You might think here, as many Christians do, pastors and preachers, that this comment Jesus just made, this passage, this little story of the widow is meant to teach us a lesson on how to give to God sacrificially, biblically. I used to think that. And as a member and then as an associate pastor of a church, I, I once taught that. And at first glance, it might read that way. The problem is that's not what this text is really about. That idea doesn't fit the context or the background in my study and what we've just heard. These comments from Jesus, they don't sound like a command or a decree or even a clear principle to follow, do they? I don't think so. Nope. What the Lord has just done is pronounce a judgment on prosperity, religious leaders who are leading people astray. They were religious predators. And you know what you have here as a picture? The Lord is showing us a victim of that religious oppression. That's what it looks like. This is not an example to imitate, folks. This is an example to avoid. You say, how do you get there? How do you arrive at this conclusion? I'm going to tell you. First, the flow of the argument, the text itself. The warning about greed. Look at the beginning of verse 40. What did the Lord say? Talking about these predators who devour widows' houses. We're talking about a widow. In the same passage. So here you have a poor woman literally figuratively poor, maybe ignorant. She'd been ripped off, her home devoured. She's giving what little she had, all of it, thinking that's going to please God and the scribes and the other leaders who were there checking all that out at the treasury. It's sad, actually. This is, this is a tragic little tale of a victim of the prosperity gospel of the first century. And 2,000 years later, we still have people victimized like this. I've met people like this that have gone through this. The rabbinical system of Judaism here is just preying upon this woman, and she doesn't even know it. 
And I think Jesus is grieved over this, and he's commenting on it. He just cursed and condemned the men who made it happen in the verse before. They're the predators. Because the woman gave more than the rich, it hurt her more than the others because she gave everything she had. She's been abused by false teachers. That's what the Lord, I think, is pointing to here. And I'll give you another reason why I don't think the widow is an example to imitate. That's very practical. First off, we don't know her heart. We don't know her motive. We don't even knew, know if she noticed Jesus was there, much less was a follower. But I'll tell you why else. Even though 2 Corinthians tells us that the Lord loves a cheerful and a generous giver, right? That means a degree of sacrifice. Even from those that have less to give. He's not calling us to give every last penny we have, which is what this widow did. Why? Because if you did that, you'd be destitute or homeless, right? Does God want you to give so much that you're going to have nothing left or an ability to pay your bills? Rent, mortgage, food. Would that make sense? Look at the end again of verse 44 of the text. Out of her poverty, she put in everything she had, all she had to live on. We're not calling you to do that. In fact, Paul wrote that we should give as cheerfully and as generously as we are able, as we can. I have a text for you, 2 Corinthians 8, of course, the middle of verse 12, where Paul says, according to what a person has, we are to give, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that is a matter of fairness. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need, talking about the Jewish church, so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. Okay? And now that we're on the topic of giving, <laughs> suffice to say, Jesus, check it out. He's good with tithes and offerings because in one of the woes, a judgment of the religious Jews, Jesus said this in Matthew 23, verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, that means you give a tenth of your mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Hold on. But these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. It's a both and, it's not an either or. Jesus is saying, it's good, you tithe, it's fine, good. But you missed out on loving your neighbor as yourself. Which leads then to the inevitable question we get once in a while here. We haven't addressed this from the pulpit in quite some time. What does the Bible and Christ Community Church require about tithing? So we'll deal with that now for a moment. The Old Testament law, just so you know, required multiple offerings. That would have pushed their total giving, it's estimated, to around 23%. That included the tithe, the 10%. But even more, because they would be taxed that way to provide for the needs of, some of the needs of the priests, the Levites, in that sacrificial system, in the tabernacle, the upkeep of the temple. However, we, CCC, do not require tithing as an absolute. Why? Because after this pre-cross, pre-gospel comment from Jesus to the Jews, Okay? The tithe is never mentioned again anywhere else in the New Testament. 
in all the letters to the churches, including the text I read you, there is no mention of tithing even in the text about giving. Only The only thing the New Testament, here on out, after the Lord resurrects, the only thing the New Testament says about giving is that it is expected, it is called for, it is necessary, and it should be generous, and it should be cheerful. That's it. It doesn't give you any prescriptions on amounts. What you give has to be determined by you, prayerfully, in wisdom, taking these principles I just mentioned into account. Cheerful, generous. And I want to tell you something else. I might recommend tithing for you as a place to start or a goal to shoot for if you're not sure where to go. A lot of people would say, I, I, how much do I give? I don't know. My suggestion for doing that, the reason being, is that the tithe was a biblical principle or a pattern. Listen, it was even practiced before the law of Moses was given. That's a real good pointer. Melchizedek received titles, tithes from Abraham back in Genesis 14. Hebrews 7 mentions that. Jacob did likewise. Later, in Genesis 28, he made a vow and an altar to God at Bethel. He tithed. He didn't have to. It wasn't in the Mosaic Law. There wasn't a Mosaic Law yet. So, to me, that's a pretty good guide. Place to start, perhaps. And above all, again, tithes and offerings should be given with pure motives in an attitude of worship to God and service to the local body. Okay? Like 2 Corinthians 9, Paul wrote, Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly, or under compulsion. It used to be under compulsion in the Old Testament system, you see? For God loves a what? A cheerful giver. That's all that we have in the New Testament letters. So I'm going to close where we started. Watch out for, be careful, looking for false teachers, religious predators, so you don't become a victim like the widow in the story. If you find yourself before a preacher or a teacher here or anywhere else that doesn't have a strong doctrine of suffering, that we're called to suffer, to die and deny self, if you find yourself where the preacher is not seriously in the scriptures or is living some lavish lifestyle, there's a reality program, you can see something about that today called Preachers and Sneakers. Self-explanatory. You have some preachers wearing sneakers more expensive than most cars that we drive. If they're living a lavish lifestyle and it's all about self, I'll tell you right now, get away from them and their ministry as fast as you can. Don't read their books. Don't watch their videos. Don't listen to their sermons. In fact, help others in the church by even calling them out by name. You say, calling them out by name? Really? Yeah. Jesus just did, Paul, John, Jude, all call out false teachers by name because they're helping the flock to know who and what to avoid. So as someone said at the close of life, the question is not going to be how much have you gotten, how much have you given instead. Not how much have you won, but how much have you done. Not how much have you saved, but how much have you sacrificed? 
It's going to be how much have you loved and how much have you served, not how much were you honored. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for clarifying so many questions and thoughts and the things that are happening today in and around Christendom. Thank you that you have given us a fair warning to watch out for religious predators and their victims, Lord. I pray for wisdom and discernment for all of our people, and as we have that wisdom and discernment, that we would share it, share it with others in discipleship, edification, building up the body, and the universal greater body as well, Lord. Father, I also pray as we're preparing to continue worship and giving, Lord, that we would understand that giving is to be generous, cheerful, and worshipful. It is a part of worship, Lord God. So we pray in thanks for your clarification. And as we heard those woes of condemnation, Lord, again, we see that hearts are exposed and it is the heart that will be condemned and will be judged. Not superficial works, superficial religiosity. So I pray if someone is depending on that today, earn their way into salvation, into heaven, into the kingdom, they would think twice. They would repent. They would confess that sin, turn away from their selfishness, from that sin, and turn to Christ alone, who by grace alone, by faith in Him alone, will forgive us of our sins and will bring us abundant joy and will bring us provision for what we truly need And he often even gives us much more of what we want. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage.